This episode of Drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm Leila McKinnon, and welcome to Drive, a podcast about driven women delivering in their chosen fields in partnership with Uber Eats for a second year. Each week, I speak to strong and passionate women who are leading their lives their way. I've been a journalist for nearly 30 years, and I've interviewed some of the biggest celebrities in the world. But along the way, I've discovered that the most interesting stories often come from people who we've never or very rarely heard from before. The politician Linda Burney is a fascinating blend of realist and optimist. She's pragmatic, but she dares to dream of a kinder, fairer Australia. She's also a proud Wiradjuri woman, a mother, and a survivor of family violence. Linda Burney, welcome to Drive. For a start, let's go back to little Linda Burney. You grew up a long way from Sydney and Canberra in a pretty small town. What was life like for you back then? Uh, well, I did grow up in a very, very small town. I was in a little place called Witten in southwestern New South Wales in an area called the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area down the Riverina. So it was a long way from Sydney. And it was tiny. I think there was about 200 people that lived in the entire town. There were farms, of course, around it, uh, wheat, rice, sheep mostly. I grew up in a very old wooden house with my great aunt and uncle, who were my mother's aunt and uncles, and they were of Scottish descent. But it was an amazingly free life for a kid. I mean, it was in the late 50s, early 60s. We were basically off at, at daybreak and back at dark. There was a common, which was bushland. We spent a lot of time there, a lot of time swimming, a lot of time horse riding, push bike riding. There's always for me, um, as the for a long time the only Aboriginal person in the town, that changed later on. But there was always something missing for me because I didn't didn't know my Aboriginal heritage. I didn't know my father. Of course, as I grew older, that began to eat into me. But yeah, it was a pretty amazing country kid's life, really. Why is it that you grew up not knowing your Aboriginal family and your heritage? I am not a person that dwells too much on the past. My mother had me out of wedlock and that was a pretty shocking thing to do in the late 50s. She was a white woman, had a black child, which was even more shocking. I'm I'm not exactly sure what happened, but my great great aunt and uncle who were in their 60s at the time took me in and raised me. You know, it wasn't until I was an adult really where I realised just how big a decision that must have been for them and how much they probably paid for it with prejudice and bigotry from the townsfolk. But it probably saved me from who knows what, maybe a life of institutional care. It sounds like they shielded you from, from a lot of that controversy and, and, and racism. But when it came time to know your heritage and to know your father, what was that like learning about it and building those relationships? 
it was hard, but such an important thing for me. I met my father for the first time on the 18th of April, 1984. And the reason I know that date so well is because I was eight months pregnant and um, I think the emotion of meeting my father, uh, I had my son who's since passed away, but I had my son the next day. But I, I remember the moment, I remember exactly what I was wearing when I met my dad. I was with my cousin's wife and I don't know where in Sydney it was, but he was at a uh, Bible college place and he got into the back of the car with me and I showed him a photograph of my mother and about the time he would have known her. I said, I think you're my father. And at the beginning he didn't recognise my mother and it dawned on him that he did. And he just let over and put his arms around me and said, I hope I don't disappoint you. And uh, we then went out to the old ANSET terminal, uh, which was <laughs> certainly not, not called that anymore. Uh, I remember talking to him before he caught his plane and there was a beautiful red sunset and um, uh, my son's name is or was uh, Binny Dillenborough. And Dillenborough in the Wiratri language means the red colours of the city. So I also found out I had 10 brothers and sisters and that we grew up 40 minutes apart. What a shame for you to miss out on that relationship and that incredibly rich culture and that connection to country. How would you say that's affected you in the years since? Has it has it driven you in some way? Um, I have a philosophy about life. It's, it is what it is and there are some things that you can influence and there are some things that you don't. That you, you know, live every moment, that you be kind and compassionate Yes, of course, it's a shame, but it is the story of so many First Nations people. Do you think that First Nations children who are growing up now, how much has their life improved than First Nations children who were growing up when you were young, do you think? They've improved enormously. There is a lively discussion in Australia. First Nations issues are now, uh, aren't anymore as marginalised as they used to be. There has been enormous work done with the various systems like the education system and the correction systems and so forth to make them more aware of First Nations issues. There's certainly more First Nations people going to university, finishing school, getting an early childhood experience. There have been enormous changes and I also think that there is an enormous sense of pride and passion amongst our young people that perhaps was not allowed to be there when I was young. Yes, it is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I never learned anything about Indigenous history at school, but my children know the name of the nation on the land in which they are growing up. And that makes me really proud that we have come so far as a country, but gosh, we've got a long way to go, haven't we? You know, how do you feel right now about things like justice, health, education and and jobs for Indigenous people? I feel that the way you've described it is absolutely correct, that there is enormous things to be still done. I mean, we've only got to look at 
you know, 500 people that have died since the Royal Commission in custody. Uh, we have the doubling of Aboriginal people in jail since the Royal Commission. So that's just one area. And you've got to have a long-term view about these things, but, you know, the, the fact that there is a regression happening at the moment, from my understanding, about longevity of life, the life expectancy is not improving. Employment outcomes are still extremely patchy. Overcrowding is endemic. There are some communities that still don't have clean water and a reliable connectivity and there are many communities where if a child wants to get a secondary education, they have to leave their land and their people to get that. And that's a difficult discussion in Australia. You started out as a teacher, but you've really been a pioneer, among others, for women in parliament, for women in government. It's not an easy career to have as a woman. What made you decide to do it? Oh, look, things that motivated me when I first stood back in 2003 are the things that still motivate me, and they aren't in any particular order, but the fact that I'm a woman, uh, the fact that I'm Aboriginal, and the fact that I have spent my entire life in the pursuit of truth and social justice are the things that inspire me. I've had wonderful shoulders to rest on throughout my life um, and I have a responsibility to provide shoulders, my shoulders, to other people. Our parliament has been described particularly in recent times as having a toxic male culture and obviously it's been really gruelling for a, a lot of women, including our first female prime minister, as a case in point of just how tough it can be to be a woman. Would you hesitate to re recommend it as a career for young women? I often recommend The thing that has changed the party that I represent, the Labour Party, is that we've had an affirmative action policy for many years now and there are almost equal number of men and women. That's incredibly important and you have to work at it. You know, with the debate that we've had in Australia around the political agenda over the last few weeks or months really is that the people that need to be front of mind are young women working in MPs' offices, not so much members of parliament, sure, that's important, but the really vulnerable people are not members of parliament. The vulnerable people are people that work for us. Are you confident that enough change, enough pressure is being applied to make it a safe workplace? No, I'm not. I think that has been... Not enough quick action. I mean, the Labor Party has signed off on harassment and bullying policy. That's really important so that there is a pathway for people in our party to get resolution within the party. But across the parliament, there needs to be two things that change. There needs to be systemic change and there needs to be cultural change. And I am not convinced that either of those things are happening quickly enough. The cultural change that needs to take place has to be from all people, particularly from men. And we've seen just recently uh, you know, Andrew Lamming, for example, being sent off on full pay for empathy training. We've seen the Prime Minister 
misstep a number of times on this issue and just doesn't get it. Uh, so I do think that there needs to be systemic change as well in terms of the way in which the parliament operates and a clear path for resolution of complaints. It reminds me somewhat of the marriage equality debate in that Australia overwhelmingly voted in favour of equality when it comes to marriage. But, you know, the government was really dragged kicking and screaming to that table. Is the government less progressive than the population as a whole? That's a really good question. I I think governments are usually the last to come to the party. This particular government, and I'm thinking about particularly the First Nations space, I think is pretty appalling. I mean, they are not supporting the Uluru Statement, to me, says it all. Speaking of the, the marriage equality um, debate, that iconic photo of Warren Inch physically swinging you around the chamber after Australia voted for marriage equality, <laughs> that's absolutely a great photo that will go down in history. What did that moment and that day mean to you, looking back on it all these years later? It, uh, it meant so much. I had no control of what Warren did, I can show you. He's a much bigger person than I did, but we were both just so happy and the galleries were just full of people and um, spontaneous applause just burst out, of course, when the legislation went through. I thought about my son who'd passed away in October that year. He was a young gay man and it meant so much to me for him. When you have a purposeful life and when you're fighting for things that are important to you, does that help you get through a loss like that? Uh, yes, it does. Um, and I think that goes back to what your philosophical position on life is. When you've got a child that is incredibly sensitive, uh, sometimes the world's a very tough place. It's just too tough for some people. But, you know, when you lose someone as precious as a child, you rely on friends and family. I sought professional help, which I think is really important. You also learn something about yourself and you be very careful and you embrace every day. Do you still have optimism that we can make the world a, a bit more of a, a gentle, kinder place for, for sensitive people? <laughs> Well, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't. <laughs> and part of that in our own country is what Uluru has asked us to do, and that is a national process of truth-telling. I just think that would be so liberating and such an important thing to do in our nation. What would you do if you were in power to help improve the lives of First Nations people? Well, the first thing we will do uh, is implement the three aspects of the Uluru Statement. That is an enshrined voice in the parliament, which will require a referendum. You embark on a national process of truth-telling. I've got a number of models in my head about how you might do that. Uh, very much borrowed from my time as a member of the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation in the late 90s. 
and you also begin the process of a national treaty. You work closely with your state and territory colleagues to get everyone on the same page as much as possible. Uh, Labor made a really big announcement last week on our commitment in government to address the issues of Aboriginal deaths in custody. But the thing that is really important, it might sound important to people listening to this podcast, but just imagine if all babies in Australia were born at a healthy birth weight. Aboriginal babies are not. They are born substantially smaller than most other babies. And think what needs to happen to get a healthy weight in a child. You have to have decent housing. Uh, You have to have good prenatal and postnatal care. You have to have uh, people feeling confident about themselves. And to me, that's a pretty important thing to do. It's a fine line, isn't it, between being hopeful and looking at and being angry. I mean, it's outrageous. I know when I had my children, I had nurses knocking at the door the next week to check on the baby and to check on me. And all the care that you get in this first world nation is not being given to everybody in the same degree. And you know, how do you balance the anger of that and the hopefulness of change? Look, don't think that... Um I don't feel angry, of course I do. For me, I can't speak on behalf of everyone else. It's a matter of being pragmatic as well. Passionate, of course. But what can you realistically do? You can't get a magic wand and tap it three times and everything's going to be okay. It requires long-term commitment. It requires a really realistic view of what you can do in what time frame, a good appropriate budget allocation. But the thing that is important is that I am in the position that can bring about those things when we are elected to government. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back after a message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is proud to support Feed Appeal, who are dedicated to improving the lives of people experiencing hunger or food insecurity. The work of Feed Appeal and their partner charities has always been crucial in providing meals for struggling Australians. But since COVID-19, there has been a sharp increase in food relief requests, with many Aussies reaching out to ask for help for the first time in their lives. Throughout the pandemic, Feed Appeal have worked incredibly hard to maintain their vital services and innovate new ways to help those in need. And as part of the ongoing partnership between Uber Eats and Feed Appeal, more than 760,000 meals have been delivered to vulnerable households. If you're looking for help or know someone in your community who is, please reach out to one of Feed Appeal's partner charities in your state at feedappeal.org.au. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Linda Burney. When you look back at what you've achieved so far, what would you credit yourself with as qualities that have helped you to get elected or or have legislation passed or achievements like marriage equality? How do you think you achieved them? The first and most important thing is to be connected to the community. And for me, that's the community of the people that I represent, but also the Aboriginal community. Take the time to go to events, take the time to go to funerals, keep the connections that you have 
alive and, and healthy. I have had the same group of friends for the last 30 or 40 years, and that's very important. I also am an incredibly loyal person. Um, I'm a hard-working person. People who cast a vote for you or against you either way, they want to know that you've got their back, and I certainly do. Is there anything that you look back and think, I wish I'd known that earlier? I've learned something, and if I'd only known that 10 years ago, it would have helped. I'm sure there is. I just can't bring anything to mind at the moment. Well, if it occurs, I mean, you we'll just let me know. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that's the case. I think probably one of the things that was a bit inevitable, and I, I guess I regret a little bit, is... I don't know that I spent enough time with my children when they were with your with your children. Yes, when they were babies. Yeah, right. I guess that's the trade off, isn't it? When you're trying to make a better world for your children, you can't be there with them as much as you'd like. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, even though my daughter now is um, in her early thirties, she will say to me, "Mum, I'm so proud of you." but I wish I'd seen more of you. And she's, you know, 33. Let's talk about family violence because that's another part of of your portfolio. I I don't know if you'd call it an epidemic, but too many women in Australia are being killed by their domestic partners. And what can be done to tackle that? I think in part, unless these deaths are humanised, then it just becomes another statistic. I think it's about opening your eyes and understanding what this means for the rest of people's lives. I often use the analogy, imagine the hue and cry if a bloke was taken every week by a shark. It would be front page news right across this nation. It would lead every news bulletin. And yet somehow or other the horrendous deaths due to family violence is tolerated. It's not tolerable. It should not be tolerated. I, I just think that we need to be thinking very differently about this epidemic. Yes, the conversation seems to be changing. And as you say, it's people who are victims of family violence becoming known. Um, their families are speaking to the media. The media is interested and is spreading that message. I know that in many states the police are on the front foot and taking charge of prosecuting the offenders when the partners of these men can't. Uh, But it's also financial, isn't it? How do we help women in those situations to get away? Oh, it is absolutely financial. I mean, I lived for five years in a, a domestic violence relationship and it was the fact that I always kept our finances separate and I had a reasonably good paying job, which is what gave me the independence to be able to leave that relationship. But I do think that there is, uh, women need to think think about this as well. I mean, I am so sick of hearing people say, well, or making the assumption that you're going to leave a violent relationship. Well, I can assure you that that just because the relationship's violent, it doesn't mean that you don't have feelings for that person doesn't mean that you aren't confused. You throw in coercive control and it becomes an extremely difficult thing to do. It is, it is not easy to leave 
any relationship and it's not easy to leave a violent relationship. So that's really important for people to understand. It's also important to understand that different people uh, see this issue in different ways. The way in which Aboriginal people or Aboriginal communities want to deal with issues of family violence is different to the way other groups might want to deal with it. And those things need to be considered. But financial independence is important. It just seems to me that one of the most important things is is that when a woman and often children are leaving a violent relationship, they need resources. There is a need for things like, you know, new school uniforms potentially, you know, a bond for a new house or making the house that you live in secure. These are the things that are really important and very doable. And, of course, the availability of secure accommodation when you leave and for accommodation when you leave a refuge or something. So there is really a case for caseworkers, actually. Linda, I know you're very busy and we're going to let you go, but I just wanted to ask you, what would your advice be to young people starting out in the world now? What's the most important thing you think you could tell somebody heading off into this big, wide, scary (laughs) world? Just believe in who you are and don't try to be anybody else. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was our last episode of Drive for this season. Thank you so much for listening. Drive is a future women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats and is produced by Bad Producer Productions. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the new season when it returns. And we'd be really grateful if you could take a short moment to leave a rating and review as it really helps us reach more people. Until next time.